This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. My guest today is Quan Huynh. He's been described as a mighty warrior, a magician, and a mountain of goodness. He is the best-selling author of the book, Sparrow in the Razor Wire, Finding Freedom from Within While Serving a Life Sentence. His book was written for people that are doing long or lifetime sentences, and in it, he shares how he found his freedom years before he was even paroled. After spending 22 years in and out of correctional institutions, Quan was paroled from a life sentence in 2015 and created his first company a mere six months later. The following year, he received the Peace Fellowship Award for his work with the Alternatives to Violence Project. He currently works as the Senior Post-Release Program Manager for Defy Ventures. Quan has been featured in Entrepreneur, PBS NewsHour, talks at Google, and numerous other publications and podcasts. Here is Quan's story. Quan, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to visit with you. I've loved your book so much. I've been waiting for this time very anxiously, so I can't wait to get started. Yeah, it's great to uh, see you. Um, If you could live anywhere in the world at any time in history, where would it be and why? Well, I would like to be there when they were building like the temples at Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember seeing pictures of it when I was in prison and just like, I go, man, this place looks just so beautiful and mm-hmm. wonder what they were doing at this time and what were the people talking about um, mm-hmm. and what were they believing? And yeah, so that, that would have been something cool to watch them building it at the time. Angkor Wat. Have you had the chance to visit it yet? No, that's no. Um, that's on my bucket list of one uh, a place I'd like to go one day. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you're from Vietnam and um, originally, well, your parents are from Vietnam, and I think you were born there, right? Yes. Um, so I know you don't have any memories from being born in Vietnam, <laughs> but so much of our own stories begin with our parents' stories. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your parents and their beginnings in Vietnam and how they met and what brought them to the United States? Sure. Uh, my father was a military officer for the uh, South Vietnamese Military Academy. This was during the time of the Vietnam War. My mother's family uh, owned the apartment complex where all the cadets were, were housed. So that's technically how they met, I guess. Uh, I remember my father said that um, he met my mom and that she fell in love with him right away, but she denies that. She, she just, <laughs> yeah. She says like, oh no, he, he, but she goes, but then later on, she just fell for his sweet talking. That's what she says. But that's how they met. Then my father had also come to the United States to train with the American forces during that time. 
So he knew what the like the lay of the land out here in the United States. We, well, we ended up losing our country uh, when the communists uh, won, and we fled to the U.S. My mom had never seen snow before, and she said, "I'd like to see snow." So when they were filling out the sponsorship papers, my father actually decided, like I think most Vietnamese families were trying to find like California or Florida mm-hmm. or something where where the, yeah. the temperature was very similar to Vietnam, and my father filled out our papers to uh, to go to Utah. Mm-hmm. And that's how we ended up in Provo, Utah. <laughs> yes, and as we all know, there is not a large Vietnamese population in Provo, Utah. <laughs> no, I would probably, I would probably guess to say we were probably the very first Vietnamese family order, I would guess. I uh, imagine you were. Yeah. And what year and was this? This was in the... 1975, or ni- well, we lost the country in April 30th, 1975. My mom says, from my mom telling me, I think, because we fled the country before uh, South Vietnam had surrendered. So I think we were in Camp Pendleton in San Diego when she heard that, or either there or in the Philippines, when she heard that our country had surrendered. Mm. Um, yeah, and then like during that time, there's the waiting list as we were uh, uh, refugees and then they filled it out. So I think my father actually, by filling out for Utah, I know that put us at the top of the waiting list. And then that's when mm-hmm. we settled right away. Did the military help get him here? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But it, uh, my, my, my aunt also, uh, while in Vietnam, though, she worked for Department of Defense for mm-hmm. the United States. So there was that connection. So we Good. were able to leave. Yeah. Um, Good. Before, I think before the country was lost. But like when I hear them tell the story, it's the timelines are jumbled together. I'm pretty sure it was a very traumatic time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yes, uh, so many immigrant refugee stories are traumatic. It's hard to document, and um, because the brain does so many interesting things under trauma, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, in, in your book, you paint such beautiful word pictures about growing up as an immigrant in uh, Provo, Utah. Uh, would you mind sharing some stories, um, both about the positive times and some of the hardships that shaped you in your young life? Yeah, I would say positive times, like my, my greatest memories of growing up in Utah, you know, it's a small town, um, where, but I would have to say it's with my father. So when we settled here, I think the first job he got was as a, a janitor or a custodian at a nearby supermarket, and he was working the graveyard shift. And then I think with his first paycheck, he bought a bike so he could get to work faster. And then later on, he ended up get, getting a job at the coal mines. Uh, my father also created the Vietnamese Refugee Association and it was just to help other Vietnamese refugees uh, settle in our new homeland. So I'm not sure when he started doing it but I remember as a little boy maybe when I'm six seven years old uh, I got to accompany my father on these weekend drives um, from Utah. He'd go to neighboring states to help other Vietnamese uh, families that didn't know how to speak English, that perhaps didn't know how to read or write. So he would help them with filling out the paperwork um, for the DMV or doing the social security documents and, and a whole bunch of stuff. You know, stuff to me as a little boy felt so boring, mm-hmm. but I could just get to see the whole, uh, um, the whole United States driving all over. And, and I get to do this in the company of my father who would just tell me stories and I get to ask all the questions that I want and he'd just have all the answers for me. 
Nice. That was my father. So those are like great memories I had, you know. And of mm-hmm. course, as a little kid, you know, Christmas time over there and is great. School, like other kids, um, for the most part, were great because it's just, uh, yeah, it was. It's a beautiful state over there. Those, those were, those are great things about it. Um, but of course, I did experience what I do know now to be racism. And I, and I imagine during that time, because of the Vietnam War, a lot of people were probably just anti-Asian. And um, yeah, so quite a few times I remember as a little kid, like I remember one time my, I was with my uncle, we pulled up to a gas station and I was a little kid and I was just in the car and I remember some people were just yelling at my, my, my uncle telling us to get out of the country and uh, you guys don't belong over here. And my uncle was uh, uh, just talking smack back and then they almost got in a fight and I was just being scared as a little kid. Yeah. Um, yeah, just in public being made fun of or even at school, there were incidents. Um, I would say probably the earliest, the most traumatic one that I, I experienced was with my younger brother. We were playing in the ditches with our G.I. Joe action figures and there were some older kids and some adults that um, were at a fence and told us like, get out of here, go get out of our country. Um, and of course, being little kids, you know, uh, I remember like telling them, oh, come and make this because they seem mm-hmm. so far away and the fence mm-hmm. was so big. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, these kids and older adults jumped the fence and chased us down. My brother, who was younger than me, uh, I dropped some of my, my action figures and he went to pick them up and then the kids came. And my brother, of course, uh, had already been fighting with other kids in school because of problems I think it was like I don't know we we're like six he was six and I was eight or I was seven he was five right around there mm-hmm. but these the kids had punched him and shoved him to the ground and just began shoving dirt into his mouth mm. um, Awful. and I stood there just scared and, yeah. and and didn't even help my brother and um, I remember walking home my father finding out what happened and he was just telling me, like, how could you let this happen to your family? You're supposed to protect your family. You cannot do this. So just feeling ashamed behind that. You know, my father never spoke about it again. But wow. I think that made it worse in my mind. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I couldn't bring yeah. it up. And I felt like I betrayed my, my father, my family, my brother. I think that incident later on is like, I remember when like conflicts escalate anything involving my brother or mm-hmm. anything involving me like mm-hmm. I, my brother would fly into a rage mm. and just be like don't touch my brother or don't you know that's my family and I think that's where a lot of this got ingrained mm-hmm. into us where mm-hmm. for myself I just feel like I have to do whatever uh to protect my my brother at all costs because I can't live with like feeling ashamed like this I cannot imagine children having to deal with racism not knowing what it's called at the time just people being mean to you Mm-hmm. And the defense mechanisms you start putting up and how you, like you were just saying, how your brother just automatically fly into a rage. I mean, it just takes once before you learn how to deal with it. Like, I don't want to feel this sense of shame or the sense of degradation ever again, right? Did you think yeah. that that little seed started at that time with that horrible, horrible incident? Oh, seed yeah. Anger and shame and violence and fighting back all kind of twisting together inside of you? Yeah, of course I didn't recognize it at the time. Um, I remember, and I think I even um, wrote about it in my book is, I would say, I'm not sure how much long after where I uh, uh, got in a fight in the playground 
and that's the first time I saw blood by beating up another kid really bad and, mm-hmm. and like being very surprised, like, where did this all come from? Mm-hmm. Um, and now only looking back at it, I go, this is where it all came from. Just, I didn't, like, I, I didn't understand why mm-hmm. I had reacted so violently and hurt the other kids so, so much. And it, I think in that, it also scared me, but mm-hmm. I knew like, oh, something's wrong with me or something. I didn't know. Yeah. But, I mean, um, as children, we just react. We don't notice it and meditate on it or look for the deeper cause. And when you're in survival mode and you just do what you got to do, right? I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about it later, how you dove into that healing and into looking deeper into that. But um, yeah, that's interesting how these life experiences at young ages shape us so much in ways you, you can't even verbalize at the time, yeah. can you? Like, interesting, the sight of blood did that to you. In your book, you mentioned that at around, I guess, age nine-ish, ten-ish, you moved to California, and then you suffered the loss of your father. Do you feel that that was a slippery slope that led to some of the choices that ultimately landed you in prison? And how did these childhood traumas and wounds you were quietly stifling affect you? Because it didn't sound like your family was the type of family that wanted to talk about their feelings and, and let's work through these emotions or how you felt when this kid beat you up or how you felt after you saw the blood. It sounded to me like you kind of just held it inside quietly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, it wasn't until later on when I'm doing a life sentence in prison where I realized how emotionally illiterate I was and I think even how emotionally illiterate our whole family was. That's a good um, phrase, emotionally illiterate. Wow, yeah. I haven't heard of that. I've heard of emotional intelligence, but I haven't heard of emotionally illiterate. I really like that. Yeah, I, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later, like mm-hmm. how I'm a bookworm, but yeah, one of the books that helped me to understand that part of myself was Emotional Intelligence by mm-hmm. Ghoston. So I don't think we really talked about feelings like that. Like I even remember as a little kid, um, looking at going to like my neighbor's houses and feeling like, why do my neighbor's moms love them so much? But it doesn't feel like my mom loves me. And it's like, and I go, oh, it's because my mom doesn't tell me she loves me. And I see like other kids' mom like, I love you, son. I love you, mom. And I go, I wish like we did that, but we did it. And um, so there was never that part of it. Of course, I always felt loved about around my father, um, but. Uh, yeah, he got diagnosed with leukemia when I was eight. Uh, so from then on out, I was just in and out. I mean, he was in and out, in and out of the hospital. Mm. Um, so I don't think we never really had discussions about feelings or any type of processing. I remember when he was in and out of the hospital, it never came up like, how do you feel about your father in the hospital? Mm. Or what feelings do you, what fears do you have? It was just well, just, you know, we're, um, our family's Roman Catholic and my understanding was just go to church and pray and, um, things are going to be better because if you're a good kid, of course, uh, yeah. uh God is going to listen. Right. And that began its own slippery slope because then when his condition deteriorates in my mind, somehow, oh, God knew I'm a bad kid or, uh, somehow me having this angry thought about my mom or my dad, God knows, and I'm being punished. And that's why he's in the hospital. So mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. All, all of that tied in together. Um, yeah, we moved out here to California when I was 10, uh, because my father's condition was getting worse. Uh, and he wanted to uh, be close to his family. 
And over here in California, that's the first time I went to school with Hispanics and Blacks and other Asians and mm-hmm. even other Vietnamese kids, you know, that were for like a large population of Vietnamese kids. So, and I imagine this ties back into the time of the, the wave of the, uh, of the refugees that were on the boats mm-hmm. that were escaping uh, communism. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of them didn't speak English well. I, of course, didn't speak Vietnamese well. And you didn't speak Vietnamese? You, your parents spoke, teach both of them? Yeah. No, I mean, I just spoke, they speak Vietnamese to me and I speak English back. So it was more, yeah, that's what just, because I don't know, that was how our family was. And I see a lot of kids nowadays do the same thing. Like if, uh, uh, seeing like my little cousins and nieces and nephews are the same thing. They'll, they'll speak English, but, um, so you understand so I didn't it, speak it that well, but you I don't understand speak it. it. And I, oh, I could speak it pretty good now i think because of all the years in prison and being around a lot of vietnamese and understood, like, okay. realizing hey i we have to learn i have to learn this because this is kind of a way to protect ourselves and be able to speak in a way that nobody understands just in case you know things happen so can you read yeah. and write and I, I did teach myself to read and write a little bit i could write i mean read a lot better than i could write but wow i i, I self-taught that too so impressive yeah <laughs> wow yeah Yeah, so we moved out here, and I think also during that time, a lot of the Vietnamese families that were coming over, um, let's say their child is 14, 15, they might falsify the date of their birthday and and put them back a few years and say, oh, the kid is 10 or 11. So Mm -hmm. um, I remember like one of the conversations with another Vietnamese kid, uh, he said, oh, uh, how old are you? And I think I said, like, oh, I'm 11. He said, well, what's your Vietnamese age? I said, what do you mean? What's my Vietnamese age? I said, I'm 11. And then and he said, like, he was 13 or 14. And I didn't understand that. I go home and ask my mom. And that's when she said, oh, these kids, their parents changed their age just so they could go back a few grades and learn wow. our language, English. But, of course, these kids were older than me, more physically mature, more emotionally mature. And I was born premature already, so I was already tiny. Like, if you're looking at junior high pictures, <laughs> and you know how they used to line you up uh-huh. by height? I'm always the very first one on the far left in the very first row because I was the tiniest kid there. That's always me. Oh. From junior high into high school. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I just remember like, damn, I'm small and something's wrong and everyone's so much bigger and then these kids tease me and say I'm whitewashed and um, mm. so I did feel like I fit in with mm-hmm. a lot of Vietnamese kids. And, now, and, and that's not to say like all kids tease me, but they were, you know, it's just weird because I only hold on to the incidents that make me feel awkward or or make me feel like I don't fit in or I'm not accepted. Mm-hmm. But I'm but looking back now, like there were plenty of kids that accepted me, but I only concentrated on, oh, something's wrong because this one kid teased me or this particular kid mm. called me whitewashed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard before, I don't know if you've heard this, that positive incidents, they have to, you have to sit and absorb them for at least 15 to 20 seconds before they sink into your memory and become a uh, core memory. But with um, negative memories, it happens just like that. We absorb them super fast, but it takes so much longer to absorb positive memories. Isn't that fascinating? That is fascinating. That makes sense, though, because I remember even for years, it was like later on in prison with a life sentence, and somebody gives me a compliment, and I cannot sit with it. Yes. It's like I make an excuse. Exactly. Until I'm called, wait, hold on, Kwan. I am trying to give you a compliment. Accept this. Uh Uh-huh. And learning that part of it and learning to say thank you and, and, and all of that. Yeah. So I, 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 that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas the negative ones, 
just latch onto and, and that's what I use to paint paint my world with it. Yeah. Yeah, we we all do that. And I can see how much more it colors our lenses, our vision of what we see because you see what you look for <laughs> as if all you're yeah. looking for is the negative and have a hard time accepting the positive. The co confirmation bias or something. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we do it all the time. Well, especially if you grow up in a home that doesn't show a lot of emotion. Do you feel this was just from your mother's upbringing or was this, is this a cultural thing? I think it is partly cultural, but I think it's, it was more, much more pronounced in my mother's family. Like okay. even now coming home and seeing how my mom interacts with my grandma and everybody else. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty strange, but yeah. But it sounds like you've come to accept her and understand the way she loves is the way she knows how to love and you're not expecting yeah. it to be a different way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. That really is true love and acceptance without condition. And that mm -hmm. shows that you've been on a very long journey to learn that because that's a very, that was an extremely long journey to get to that point. So I, mean, I think it still is on some days. Something that surprised me in your book was when you were describing uh, being in prison and how active the game life was still in the inside. I really was surprised. The whole idea of each race taking care of their car. I mean, it seems like prison just breeds racism. And I had no idea, at least from reading your book, that's the way it sounded to me. Is prison just a microcosm of the outside? And why is gang life so important? So prison, gang life, I would say is important because that's where your reputation comes from, your sense of feeling accepted, uh -huh. a sense of being part of a group. I think, you know, it's human nature to want to be part of a group and whatever that group's norms or values are, then mm -hmm. um, we just take it up. Is prison just a, another uh, image of how it is here? I would, I would say yes, because there's, there's people out here that are that may be racist and may not even know it, but this is just their group and this is their beliefs. And it's these outsiders that are doing this. It's this group of that that, that is, mm -hmm. you know, I still see it all the time and just how people talk. You know, I'm, I'm very sensitive to racism. I could uh, uh, sometimes maybe there's not even somebody that's racist, but they say something and to me in my skin, it feels racist or, you know what, or I label them. Just this person doesn't like Asians, just the way they just said it, I could tell. And it, mm. I might be totally wrong, but it's just something that I just hold on to. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that can still trigger me even to this day, even after all the, the internal work that mm -hmm. I've done, I, I know it, I can still be triggered by it all the time. I appreciate um, your honesty in that. Yeah. Um, Cause a lot of us want to act and pretend that, after we've learned something, we check that one off the box and we are, yeah. we're on. <laughs> I, would, I wish you were that easy. I right? know. Right. Yeah. So then you I'll are, just read a few books and I'll there you go. <laughs> <I know. laughs> if only. So you were drawn to gang life at what age? So I, it's funny because that time it wasn't gang. It was just, so my father passed away from leukemia when I was 13 and Oh, and if you, you want to talk about Bizarre, the day he passed away was also the day of our first communion. It also mm -hmm. fell on Mother's Day. Tomorrow is actually uh, when he passed away. Um, was ah. it 20, 40 something years ago? Wait, 1988. So 12, 33 years ago, oh, May 9th, sorry. 1988. Yeah. So I remember I woke up 
it was Mother's Day. It was our first day of our first communion. Um, mm. Woke up and found out that my my sister tells me, Dad died last night. I overheard Grandma talking and Mom. We're not supposed to know. That's what my sister said. I went back into my brother's room. Me and my brother shared a room, and I told him, Dad died last night. We're not supposed to know. So we get dressed, going to communion, acting like nothing is wrong. And it was, and I didn't realize how bizarre it was until I started yeah. writing. And, and then yeah. I looked and I go, holy shit. Yeah, like, people don't do it that way. <laughs> yeah. And we're in church and everybody's happy and celebrating. And I'm listening to the priest talking about how this is a joyous event. Every family oh. there is happy. And then we're sitting there and having to put up this front that my dad is still alive or that we don't know that my dad is dead. And we had not, by, I'm telling you, my mom and grandma had not talked about it until we walk out of church. And then my mom says, dad died last night. And, and then her reasoning to this day, when I asked, I go, why didn't you tell this? Oh, we couldn't tell you because you had to go to church that day. Like, I, I'm, yeah. So, and after that, oh, she no. just said it. It wasn't like, how are you feeling? Let's go talk to a therapist. Let's go talk to a yeah. family therapist. It was none of that. It was just, okay, your dad's dead. And then um, other people said, oh, your dad's in a better place. And it didn't feel like Mm-mm. all of this stuff that like they were saying that I know now to be totally wrong. And, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't help somebody to grieve. Were you able uh, to grieve? I would say I did not begin to grieve until at least 25 years after his death when I'm doing the life sentence. I can't imagine. Yeah. Imagine holding yeah, I was 13, yeah. that long. Yeah, I remember, like, I never talked about it. Like, I remember when people brought it up, like, oh, where's your dad? Oh, my dad died. Uh, really? He, uh, yeah, he died when I was 13 from leukemia. Oh, tell me more. And I thought, no, that's it. I, and then I never touch it. It's just in this dark corner of my heart, whatever. And I don't talk about because it just feels like I'm going to cry or whatever. And I, I thought that was wrong to cry. I remember at, even at his funeral when there, when like some of the other military men that was at my, my father's uh, military academy or the people that he worked with and other adults and uncles mm-hmm. said, you're such a strong boy. You're mm. just like your father. You know, you look at you, you're, you're going to be fine. And I definitely didn't feel fine, but I go, mm. oh, this is what it means to be a man, I guess. And not good. That's messages. how. Yeah. Oh, no. And that's what I just really believe. So my father passed away when I was 13. So that's right before I began high school. And, you know, like during that time, the Vietnamese community out here in Southern California, I think was also experiencing quite a bit of racism. So, you know, like now you see on the news, Asian hate and all that. And I go, oh, yeah. this is nothing new. I've experienced this my whole life. Mm-hmm. Out here. Mm-hmm. And the irony is back then we formed these groups to protect each other mm-hmm. back then like we formed our group of friends like if i'm with my friends and it's always in in our, our culture back then like if something happens you have to jump in and protect your your group and your friends and that's kind of just what i believe in and coming mm-hmm. up around that time and mm-hmm. the irony is those is what later became the gang element and then these different vietnamese gangs that were supposed to be protecting each other in our community we ended up preying on our communities and victimizing each other instead of protecting our community and that's I mean, if, if you're looking back into the late 80s, early 90s, all the Vietnamese uh, gangs were just out here killing each other or robbing each other, or robbing the community. There was really, yes, there may have been some incidents of protecting against other races uh-huh. that are, are picking on us. But um, I think for the vast majority of it was uh, the victims were our own community. 
that was, that's a fascinating origin story to me of that. I've never heard that. I mean, I understand why groupings of people join together. There's commonality, there's similarities of things um, that everybody understands and language or food and culture, but to protect each other and then it ends up turning on itself. How sad. That is so yeah. sad. I think, I think a lot of the gangs, uh, from what I understand, let's say that we were looking at like a lot of the, the gang cultures of the different, um, you know, like where you're looking back to the uh, um, different immigrant experiences, let's mm -hmm. say the, the Italians when they first started in New York and like mm -hmm. all the immigrants and, and later on down the line, different gangs and different uh, uh, cultural gangs, particularly. I think they always first banded together to protect themselves. And it's then suddenly, you have knives or guns, and then there's a lot of male testosterone involved, and there's a lot of reputation and fame, mm -hmm. and suddenly all these other things go out the window, and mm -hmm. you forget what the purpose is in the first place. So yeah. that's uh, power corrupts, so I, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's very fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so the same culture just is inundated into the prison system as well the prison can't do anything to change that it's not rehabilitating it it sounds like no but it's weird because the, even the california like i can only speak for the california prison system mm -hmm. and it's like well even not even the prison the juvenile hall right when i you go in it's my race and then you go in into like later on the california sorry you bunk up with someone of your race like right when you come in what are you are you black are you white are you southern hispanic which is are you northern hispanic are you what they call other and they just lump us Asians into this group called wow. other, and then, and then they categorize you, and that's who you bunk with. So if I'm in a room with an other, and if the others are fighting the blacks, then suddenly it's it's like okay, well, I don't know what this fight is about, but all blacks are attacking Asians, so Asians have to attack all blacks. And mm -hmm. so, would you like to share the reasons that um, led you into juvie, and then again into prison? Yeah, I've, my first arrest came at 17 for the three attempted murders of some self-proclaimed uh, skinhead kids. My brother called me when I was working at Subway to tell me that some local skinhead kids had called our house and threatened to kill my mom and my sister. Uh, by that time, our group of friends, we had this little 22 caliber gun. Uh, my friend, none of us had ever used it. My friend had pulled it out at like a house party that summer. Uh, when we were surrounded by a bunch of other kids and everybody ran because he had a gun. So suddenly everything out of us during that time is, oh, well, let's just get a gun and we'll just shoot them all up. And um, mm. so everything was, that's all we talked about throughout that whole summer and the beginning of my senior year. So that day when they came to Subway and told me that these guys had threatened to kill my mom, I said, okay, let's find where they live and we'll shoot them up. Uh, and I asked my coworker, if she knew where they lived. So she drew us a map and I gave it to my brother and my friends. And I said, okay, come back and pick me up uh, at 10 o'clock when I get off work and we'll go and we'll find this house and we'll shoot it up. Those were my exact words. Mm -hmm. Well, when I got off work, they never came to pick me up. I came home and my brother was laying in bed terrified. He was 15 at the time, I was 17. And he said like, after they left my work, they went to a, an arcade and some of, um, they found somebody else that knew where these guys lived. They went over there and my other friend went up to the house, knocked on the door, they opened and he ran inside and shot three people. Yeah, fortunately, oh, all three of them survived, but we were arrested uh, within a couple of weeks. They charged me with three attempted murders. And yeah, so at 17, 
uh, I was already facing 45 years to life. I ended up pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit murder. I had a big chip on my shoulder because I felt like this was so unfair. Why did I get arrested? Like I wasn't even there. And um, I never knew anything was going to happen, but uh, understanding my own journey is like, okay, I still made a choice to be involved and I still made a choice to lie to the officers when they we were first questioned to protect my brother and everybody else. That is what I'm responsible for, you know, not worrying about anything else. But yeah, so that was the first arrest going into juvenile hall and just really getting engrossed into that type of element of that criminal thinking and coming out Im- more angry. I can't imagine the baptism by fire, what you have to learn so quickly to survive in an yeah. institution like that. Yeah. I hear you. It doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound right. It sounds like, well, he said some incriminating words, but he shouldn't be charged with anything. He just needs a little slap on the wrist because, hey, that's just, he's a kid. Sometimes kids talk big. Like, it doesn't seem like something you should have gotten 45 years. Yeah, we were facing, I ended up getting seven years, but then that was my first conviction. They charged me as an adult and um, they charged me as an adult. So I went to the county jail as a juvenile and uh, got indoctrinated very quickly into the gang element there and came home, you know, just lost, confused and angry and, and, and having no idea that I was any mm-hmm. of those. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine. Yeah. Like it wasn't to even, I remember years later in prison, um, like if you had asked me before that point, were you angry? And I would have said, no, I'm not angry. Like, my description of somebody angry is somebody that screams and yells and, oh, and, wow. and, and does all this. But, um, but like, okay, I, I never did any of that. When, I, when something bothered me, I would just uh, attack them or I would pull out the gun and shoot at them. But I'm not angry. That's yeah. not angry. Oh, my yeah. gosh. What <laughs> yeah. warped thinking. <laughs> yeah. But that was, how, that was exactly how I felt or, or, and believed for like years of my life it's almost until like- later on, yeah. It's almost like when I was reading your book, it's almost like prison saved you. Like, do you think you would have been alive had you kept living with that mindset outside of prison? Like, maybe you would have died much sooner. Yeah, I don't know. Never get to this point of enlightenment and healing and helping others that you've ended up with at the end of this journey. Is it good or is it bad? It certainly feels bad, but look at the good that it produced. Mm Mm-hmm. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry. Please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. That's intense. And so it sounded like you kind of did good for a while after you got out, and then you ended up back in prison and this time it was for a much longer sentence like was it 15 years 16 years yeah 
Well, I went, so over, after that first arrest, um, they began like a, a journey of going in and out. I was violated several times for parole violations, uh, additional gun charges, gang members, um, hanging out with gang members, all this stuff. And of course, like when I look at now, yeah, I basically lived like a double life. Part of me had my sense of identity in the gangs where I really felt accepted and I was recognized and there was a reputation. And the other part of me just wanted something better, but I didn't know how to go about it. I ended up committing a murder in 1999 after I had just got out in 1998, the year before. I got interviewed for a management position at the Gallup organization. And I remember when they interviewed, because I was their 1998 interviewer of the year, it was a personality-based interview. And it was about a month or two later when they came back and they just said, you are, we're sorry, but you are not a fit. You know, those are the exact words they used. Yeah, they said, you're not a fit. And I think it just touched on that, just a part of me that just felt, you know what, this is further evidence that something's wrong with me. I don't fit in. Um, it was within a couple of weeks that I went to this nightclub in Hollywood uh, with a couple of my gang associates. Mm-hmm. And when I came out of the club, I found out some of my friends had gotten into a fight with a rival gang. For me, I remember when I went to the pro board and they asked me over and over, like, you weren't even involved in this fight. Why were you the one to pull the trigger? Why did you want? And luckily, I, I think by that time, I understood why. It was just because, you know, when we're talking about not understanding my emotions and just shoving them down into a dark corner, and I wasn't able to tell or process anyone that how I was disappointed for being turned down, how I was angry mm-hmm. or how I was any of that. All I knew was I did not feel good. And here is an opportunity for me to take it out on somebody mm-hmm. that in the gang makes it socially acceptable because I could say, Oh, because they're looking at us wrong or because they uh, were mad dogging us or because these guys got in a fight with us. So don't they know mm. who we are? And even in prison later, um, looking back and just realizing that is basically how we operated and seeing one of my friends who I thought, oh, this guy is very violent and very what we call down. But then looking back later thinking, you know what? He probably had just as many issues going in his home as I did or whatever, or in his mind, let's say he gets in an argument with his girlfriend or his mom or whatever it is. And he calls me up, let's go to a pool hall. Let's go out here. Oh, these guys are looking at us and we end up getting in a fight. And I I probably bet most likely it wasn't because anybody was looking at him wrong or maybe the guy just looked at him a little bit uh, uh, wrong, but then he went over and above because mm. of this inability to process emotions. Because we never talked yeah. about, oh, I, I got in, I'm not feeling, I'm feeling sad because I got in a fight with my girlfriend. Like, uh-huh. you know, we don't talk about that. <laughs> it's more like, hey, let's, uh, let's go grab a couple of drinks. Let's, oh, let's go yeah. out. Let's, yeah. and then end up, oh, yeah, well, oh, we got in a fight. And suddenly there's this excitement and, and, and things like that. So that night, that is what I felt. Let me take out on these guys what's going on in my life. I may feel like a failure in this part of my life, but I know in this arena right now, I am not going to fail and I will get recognized and I will further you know, um, push forward my reputation and all that. So I ended up, uh, we followed them for about 20, 25 miles on the freeway. I ended up shooting into the car and killing one man by the name of Minnewin and injuring uh, a couple more passengers, or a couple other people that were inside the car with them. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that was in 1999. So about 
uh, the next day I found out that somebody had died. So I got rid of the gun. I got rid of, uh, made sure my car was clean, told people my car, this is what we don't ever talk about again. And just went about trying to live my life. Uh, it was about four or five months after that, that they arrested us in a gang suite for the murder. And then mm. um, I was tried for the death penalty. By that time, they had no evidence. I had already coached witnesses and I ended up getting on the stand and lying at trial. Uh, I was found guilty of second degree murder. The jury didn't think that I was the shooter because I had lied on the stand and convinced them that I was not the shooter. Uh, there was a there's a person that turned state's evidence against me and, and told them that I was a shooter. He was in the car. So I, I basically just flipped it around and said, no, he's lying. He was the shooter. And I blamed it on him. The jury believed me and I was given 15 years to life, which basically at the, at the time mm-hmm. meant a death sentence anyway, because mm-hmm. uh, in the state of California, they were not paroling any lifers. Mm-hmm. I think historically it was from 1977 on, they had not paroled one single lifer in the state of California. Unbelievable. So I'm sure your stomach sank, which I read something in your book saying you had a huge victim mentality um, in the whole situation, which is understandable. I do find it very interesting how you were processing those emotions, though, how you said even the victim himself could have just been angry. And it was just almost like a knee jerk reaction, like both of you had knee jerk reactions, almost like you weren't thinking through things. This was just the acceptable Mm -hmm. way, like you mentioned, of handling your emotion. I wonder how many people do that. I can imagine so many people are in that same boat. And I wonder if it's easy for you to see now since you've- Oh yeah, I, I, I see it all the time. In there, I was able to see, because we're living like in a fishbowl. So you could see mm-hmm. the guy that ends up beating up some other guy in the day room over changing the channel, a channel he was watching. It had nothing to do with the channel. It was everything mm-hmm. else that was going on in his life leading up to that point, and this person pushed him over the edge. Mm-hmm. I see it out here in traffic where people get angry and go crazy or in mm-hmm. line, and it's, it's probably not because this person cut in front of them or this person break too hard, but it's because there's a bunch of other stuff going on in their life. They're already angry. They don't know how to process it. They're already mm-hmm. upset, and mm-hmm. this kind of puts them on edge, and here's a way to scream and yell at yes. this and, and take it on somebody. And yes. yeah. Hurting people hurt, right? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you, you really explained very well in the book how uh, prison is just filled with hurting people who are ready to hurt others like you just mentioned in the day room for switching a channel and how it's deemed that fra- infraction is deemed as disrespectful. It sounds like respect is a super important thing inside. Yeah. I really liked it when you said, I know that because many times I hid my fears and feelings underneath that same catch-all word disrespect. When did this understanding dawn on you? Was it while you were in prison? Yeah, it was while I was in prison. But after, I I would have to say, my process of transformation began. Mm -hmm. Um, It was understanding some type of, like, I think becoming emotionally literate and understanding emotions and how it drives and or colors um, uh, behavior and, mm-hmm. and, and my perception of the world. And just seeing somebody's in my dorm ends up wanting, oh, that guy disrespected me. But it's more, no, what is this word? But we, we use it so much in prison, mm. but it's basically this catch all word to be able to say, because you couldn't say in prison, he said a bad word to me and he hurt my feelings. And, Nobody never talks like that. It's just they just hide it under disrespect. 
Yeah. So can you think back to the exact moment where you realized the transformation had started? Did it start with this person you named Donnie in your book? Donnie. Yeah, that I, he, he was a godsend. He was the guy. I remember I had gotten in trouble. They put me on what's called C status, which is basically called program failure. Oh, no. And I was supposed to go to the hole for nine months. But because they, 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 they caught me with like some cell phones, tobacco, like contraband items in prison. And that was not the first time I had been written up. So they took me to um, the committee. And I remember they said, you're a program failure. You know, it's funny, like, you know, before at Gallup, when they turned me down to you're not a fit, that triggered me. Mm-hmm. Inside that, that room right there, when I went into the administrative office, I remember a psych was sitting there, the, the associate warden. I said, you're a program failure. And I said, how am I a failure? You know, I, I was so mm. adamant that I was not a failure. I said, mm-hmm. how is what I'm doing a failure? Um, I'm only providing a, a, a service and things that men on this yard want. And, and I was really justified in thinking, mm-hmm. hey, there's nothing wrong with the, what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, what's wrong with you guys? And, and I was more angry that someone had told on me. And I remember they, they, they moved me out of the dorm. They took away all my privileges. I was limited to this dorm to one hour a day. Yes, I've always been a bookworm. And so right around that time, I remember this guy, seeing this guy in the day room, he sat down with one, this, this guy used to always come by my bunk named Todd, and he's always selling me like onions and green bell peppers and stuff because I like to eat vegetables. Mm-hmm. And one day I see Todd sitting with him, and I said, Todd, like, who's that guy? What are you doing in the day room with that dude? And I've seen that guy, Donnie, before. Donnie, I've seen him speak in public when we have like, these events in prison and he's right there usually talking to the other man hey you guys have to start believing in yourself you can go home and i'm thinking how the hell are we gonna go home who's this guy but it was i was, I was more i really was in awe of how he was able to talk to people and, and just make us feel all connected and i guess give us a sense of hope but mm-hmm. uh, i remember Do- uh, todd said oh that's donnie he's gonna help he's helping me prepare to go to the board uh to help me go home and I remember jokingly just saying, because both Todd and Donnie are black, and I said, oh, so Donnie only helps black folks? So uh, Todd went back, I guess, told Donnie. So Donnie, I guess, asked, also, hey, can I talk to that guy over there? So it was like a week later, Donnie first sits with me and said, oh, uh, so I hear you only think I want to help black folks go home. That was our first conversation. And um, that was, I think, where the light of things came on, like, wait, there's a lot of work for me to do on myself. Because I remember he said, tell me about yourself. I'd never been asked that. Like, tell me, like, what am I going to talk about myself? Wow. Uh, so I remember going off on a tangent, but I didn't know the tangent. I just said, oh, yeah, I was arrested for this, and I was at this person, and I got this, and basically telling, like, not about myself, but it was just more like my journey. I went to this prison and this prison, but the very superficial mm-hmm. uh, uh, way of talking. And I remember Donnie stopping me right mid-sentence saying, hold on, I asked you to tell me about yourself. I didn't ask where you've been or what prison or or why you're here, like, tell me about yourself. And I could not answer that question. Wow. When he asked me, what do you like about yourself? I could not answer that question. I so, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that is when I go there. And I remember he slid this book to me. He was one of the tipping points, I would have to say. It was also around that time. I got a, a picture of my brother's daughter, my niece. And seeing her picture for the first time, she looked exactly like how my brother was. It just reminded me like, oh my God, this is my brother. I could see her, my brother in her. 
mm-hmm. so precious and beautiful and 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 it made me think like what how did my life end up like this mm-hmm. and am i meant to die in prison um how, how did this all come about you know just asking myself i remember also thinking like wait my father died when he was 37 38 years old and look mm-hmm. what he had created in, in, in those 37 years, like his mm-hmm. funeral and how many people showed up and all the people mm-hmm. that said like how he affected their families. And I think it was around that time. I was also 37, 38, I think, thinking and contrasting that with my own self and crap, look at this, mm-hmm. look at the waste of what you've done. Wow. So it was right around that time. I was also reading so many different books and I had this habit of going down rabbit trails of like topics that fascinate me. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll go back into the acknowledgement section of a book uh-huh. and see what authors me too uh, uh, they or what other books they read and uh-huh. something looks interesting. Oh, let me research this and I so I get more books about it and I go to the library and bring it back and read. So I've been known to have like simultaneously have like four or five books that I'm reading all at the same time. Somehow I stumbled on the I get fascinated and go down this rabbit trail on books on the saints, uh-huh. particularly stories about saints that have failed in some way mm-hmm. and that suddenly went on to change the trajectory of their lives to do some type of legacies. And they fascinated me. I'm like, how did they do this? Of course, understanding that and then suddenly going down rabbit trails on spirituality and books on mindfulness and personal development. Then I get mm-hmm. going to this to this thing on personal responsibility and choices and I still meeting with Donnie. So this all like became like this perfect storm in my head. And I would have to say, and in my heart, where one day it was on the prison yard, um, I uh, was standing there at the fence and I said, why does prison have to be punishment? Why can't it be a place that I can remake myself, even if I'm supposed to die in here? Like, why can't this be, I'm, I leave a legacy in some way? And of course, the answer was I could. And when I realized that, it, it, you know, that just small, subtle uh-huh. shift in thinking, yep. it made all the difference in the world. You know, I mean, you were open and, to and, transformation at that point. You had a much yeah, more would, open mind, it sounds like. Yeah, I would say so. I remember like in the book, I even detail, like, you know, the, the sun was coming up over the hills mm-hmm. and I could feel the warmth um, in the little blades of grass. I could see the individual drops of the dew and up above me in the razor wire, uh, I heard a sparrow chirping. And I tell everyone, like, it's probably been chirping my whole term, and I never mm-hmm. once heard it. But mm-hmm. that day I heard it, and, and he was just up there chirping, and, and I just felt like, oh, my God, it doesn't have to be punishment. And yeah. I would have to say, like, from that day, prison was not, like, this cold, harsh, ugly place. It, it became a place where I began to remake myself and began to be present and to begin to recognize, like, other men on the prison yard, many of them much further along on the journey, and and some of them perhaps not even awakened yet, but it was just a journey. It was wow. also around that time I uh, decided I wanted to to check in with a therapist and talk about my father's death for the first time. And then of course beginning to understand that I get I go down these rabbit trails on grief and loss, and very fascinated with Kub- Elizabeth Kubler Ross's like. Uh, uh, stages of grief and then mm-hmm. understanding my mm-hmm. own journey in that and yeah. other books on that. And healing was that, slow and steady. It sounds like it, it yeah, came through, it came was, through people reading therapy, nature. It sounds mm-hmm. like it came through a lot of different avenues, relationships. Yeah. 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 Connections. Yeah. All of that. And yeah. then understanding that grief and loss process 
and then understanding my own grieving. But then I think more importantly, beginning to see, wait, grief and loss is not just losing a loved one. It's also entails, and looking at the men around me also entails having family members move on, um, having family members no longer talking to a person, uh, a man being at one prison for 10, 15 years and being sent to another prison and having mm-hmm. to make new friends mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and not able to grieve. And I saw so much need for a way to grieve around me that I put together a syllabus and I submitted it to the prison psychologist who loved it. And we created the prison's first ever uh, grief and loss group and, and seeing that. And then what that did for me for the first time realizing, I remember Donnie, uh, telling me, you know, you ain't really got it unless you give it back. And mm. I realized this is what he meant. Because Donnie, by, I think by that time, had already paroled. He was found suitable and they let him go. But he had shared so many teachings with me. That's a and, very simple, beautiful way of expressing how, we t- how our lives are to touch other people, isn't it? Yeah. I love it. Simplistic, yeah. just it's to the point. You ain't really got it unless you give it away. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I had to remind myself all the time. And that was so what I was doing. So that's where I think I would have to say I became alive for the mm-hmm. first time in my life and felt like this is purposeful for me. And regardless if anybody in the outside world knows, like, or, or, but I realized in this little forgotten corner of the world, on this prison yard, mm-hmm. where no one would ever know of us, mm-hmm. I am making an impact and I am able to help these men around me. And, and that's just how I felt. So, you know. And that's when you turned the corner. Yeah, I would have to say that's when I began turning the corner. So yeah. then, of course, reading books on facilitating and how to lead groups and how to bring the best out in teams and, mm-hmm. and, and being fascinated with that. And then, then of course, uh, going down rabbit holes on restorative justice yes. and providing healing and, and all of that and how that tied in. And then mm-hmm. all of this suddenly for me became, oh, this all makes sense. You know that saying, um, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's what it felt oh, like. like. Excellent correlation. All of it, whether it's books, whether it's other men along their journey, whether it was difficult people that were, were there to help me along in my own journey. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was all of that, that. Your eyes were finally opened and you finally mm-hmm. could see what has been in front of you this whole time, right? Yeah. I love it that you mentioned the story of the sparrow on the razor wire and aptly titled of your book as well, um, because that was my absolute favorite part in your book. And I want to read it as, as a quotation because I loved it so much with your first encounter with a sparrow. You say, up above me in the razor wire, I heard the chirp of a sparrow. I looked up and there it was perched between the circular coils of the shiny razor wire. It was dark brown with uneven white streaks. I noticed it was missing the lower part of one leg and on the other had only three claws instead of four. It was obvious that it had lost the claw and limb from landing on the razor wire. Yet, with all the scarring and deformities, the sparrow still perched proud singing for whoever was listening. And then at the close of the same chapter in the most beautiful poetic language, you say, the sparrows never explained their deformities and only sang for those who listened. Mm, that is one of my favorite sentences ever. It's so poetic. The sparrows did not have to explain their deformities, but their music still brought joy to people who listened. I can just sit and think on that for so long. Every time I hear a bird, like in my backyard now, that's what I'm thinking of. I'm not thinking about what the bird looks like. I'm thinking how it's using its gift to spread joy. 
And the same, you're doing the exact same thing. And those quote deformities, whatever those are, lack or fault or bad choices or anything that any of us could fill in the blank with that. That's your story. That's what makes you beautiful now. I think that, and that's what makes your, your life worth living and sharing and touching others. I just, mm, I love that so much. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. I'd like to talk about these, this uh, group you joined after your transformation started in prison. You joined the AVP, the Alternatives to Violence Program. Are these programs popular in prison? Um, this was the first I'd ever heard about it. Could you tell me a little bit more about it and why you chose to join it? Yeah, that, uh, well, that, per, that organization has been around since 1977. I think they started out of Greenhaven Prison in New York. It was a collaboration between uh, prisoners at, that, at Greenhaven and a local uh, Quaker community. Hmm. And they were, it, it was originally created, I think, to help at-risk youth and it's grown to what it is today. It's at not a lot of prisons, but it's at some prisons. And one thing I really liked about it is that in AVP, we work on teams as facilitators. There's like, you work on a team to bring it out to the community and, and there's lessons on effective communication, uh, team building and um, being able to have I statements. And there's, that's when we mm -hmm. speak about feelings and I messages and, and exploring all of that in, and building all that to resolve conflicts. And conflicts, you know, of course, everyone thinks, oh, conflict is bad. And AVPers say, no, conflict is, can be used for good and for change. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. conflict is part of life. So mm -hmm. I would say AVP was one of the first programs that I felt like, oh, man, I feel like I'm a part of something much greater than me. And I feel like I can change the world with this program and what we're doing here. I remember seeing like uh, when we saw, okay, what is the saturation point? At what, at what point when we get enough people to AVP, does it begin to change the culture of the prison yard? Because I saw what we were doing there change the culture of the prison yard that I was on, where men can begin to express conflict in ways that were no longer violent, where they didn't have to resort to violence and, and they, could, mm -hmm. they could resolve and or forgive others and or forgive themselves. Um, mm -hmm. It was in AVP that I realized that I ha would have been a terrible manager at, at Gallup at the time. And I had to admit that to myself, like, yeah, I would, I would have been too cold, too wow. harsh, too judgmental. And it was there I realized working on teams and being able to give feedback. It was in AVP where um, I learned to the gift of what feedback can really do if I'm open to it. You know, I remember when they started, there was this thing where, they, okay, they, they, they lavish praises on what you did well. And I love hearing that part of it. But when it came yeah. to where could I improve, they, everything in me wants to go, uh, uh, feel mm -hmm. let, me, let me explain why. Hold on. That's, the, that's not what happened. And then, uh, but then getting them to me to get to a point where, wait, it doesn't matter uh, what my intention was. This is everyone's experience of me and understanding that and really embracing that mm. and really you know, inc incorporating that into my own life and realizing, wait, this is, it's human nature to want to put our best foot forward and not uh, look for a way to improve. But how, like, if you ask any human being, do you want to improve? Do you want to be, become a better human being? Everyone will say yes. But what yeah. does it take to get there? Hard well, work. It takes, yeah. And does it, and if, the, and an ability to just 
get feedback on you know lear- learning edges or, or mm-hmm. blind spots and, mm-hmm. and all of that and people are resistant to it because maybe it doesn't match the narrative or the script that they've told themselves in their head like oh yeah I'm good at this I'm good at this so if someone's telling them no you're actually not as good what do you mean I'm not as good and I mean I learned a lot from that when you were discussing that in the book, I was able to have, I took, had a lot of takeaways from that where like when you talked about how conflict isn't always bad, that it's for our good. I, I needed to hear that. I needed to learn that. It was, um, it was a very positive learning experience for me. You, you framed it in a very positive way. So I appreciate that very much. One of the things I also appreciate about you is how you studied for your parole board hearing. I find that you studied for years by studying other people's transcripts and where they went wrong. And um, I can see your love of uh, psychology and digging in deep into the mind and where it's going and the whys behind everything starting to blossom at that time. Tell me how all that studying paid off for your parole board hearing. What was going on in your mind throughout this and, and how you coped and learned and took that negative feedback and did something positive with it. Yes. In the state of California, every time a, a, a lifetime prisoner goes to the parole board, they are issued a parole hearing transcript of the actual hearing. So it's the exact words of what happened in the hearing. For some reason in prison, men do not share their transcripts. Nobody shares transcripts with each other. Nobody talks about it. It's just this mm. like maroon folder you could see it's just a it's just a, a little packet it's maroon on the back and it has a plastic uh, uh, thing on the front and just this word type word and i just know those to be parole transcripts and no one ever asked to it's like nope you're not supposed to ask about that so i remember people mm. would tell me like oh the parole board is this it's so terrible in there and what this and for some reason during that time this time of like studying and learning and trying to change myself one of my friends Besides, we were just talking about the pro board. He said he had gone seven times. I had never gone yet. He decided for some reason, I, I'm still not sure why to this day, but he decided to bring over to my bunk area all seven of his parole transcripts. These are seven different hearings he had gone through over the course of 30-something years. And oh, my. Let me read it. He's like, here, check this out. So I open, read it, and right away, open my eyes, wait doesn't exactly match up to what he's told me all these years about what happens in the parole hearing. He said this, but when I'm reading in black and white, I go, how could he be so off? And how could he just not look at this and see? And I open my eyes to, wait, I think they're not letting him go, not because of his crime, but because he hasn't come to this place of personal responsibility. He's not holding himself accountable. And like all these things I am reading about of self-forgiveness and self-acceptance and, mm-hmm. and personal responsibility and all of these. I go, Bobby, I think I know why they're not letting you go. I don't think it has anything to do with this. I go, here, read this book. And he reads the book and we start talking about personal responsibility. He goes, oh, I think I get it. So we started talking. So we decided to sit down. And I don't know why, but I go, I think I could help you. So let's start going for pre- doing board prep for you. Yeah. So, of course, people in the day room saw, like, what are you and Quan doing? And Bobby said, oh, Quan's helping me prepare for the board. So of course everyone like how can Quan help you prepare for the board? Yeah, he's Quan never, has never gone to the board. He's <laughs> never gone. So how and look at us. All of us have gone multiple times. All of us have been in here thirty some mm-hmm. years. Like how can Quan, who the hell is Quan to help you prepare for the board? Yeah. 
for some reason, another of my friends decided to sit with us in a group because he had also been influenced by Donnie, my other friend. Uh, we sit down together and we start talking. We start preparing for board. My friend goes to pro board and it sounds suitable. So suddenly he comes back. People go, how did he get found suitable? Mm-hmm. And that's when I guess the floodgates begin to open where guys like, wait, Quan knows something and they want to sit down with me. So I began this process of sitting down with guys and coaching them. But I said, nope. First thing is you have to give me your parole transcripts and I have to read it because I, I just felt like the first few people I sat with and I never read the transcript. I, I know what they're telling me happened. Oh, they denied me because of this and this and this. I said, okay, let me see your transcript. And I read the transcript and that's not why they got denied. It's, and it's right there in black and white, but they don't read it or they read over. And maybe that's a, you know, and a tied in right with being able to sit with feedback. They mm-hmm. dis- dismissed everything that the commissioners had said, why? And they latched on to something else that made them feel better inside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I realized how much of this is human nature. And, and, a, and a great learning lesson out of that made me self-examine. What narratives do I hold on to my, in my head that is perhaps not true with reality? And having to do that self-examination, I began sitting with men over those next several years to help them prepare for board. I, I know they thought like, okay, Quan, I want to sit with you. And I know in their mind, they want to sit with me because I'm going to help them go to the pro board and go home. But my intention is, I know this amazing secret about my life right now where I already feel free and I want to share with them. So I'm going to sit with them. They think it's for the pro board. And yes, it is for the pro board. But my ulterior motive is to shift their heart and their mind to a place so that there, there are no magical combination of words to get them out from prison. But if they shift their heart and their mind enough in the proper way, I think what will come out of their mouth will get them uh, to be found suitable to go home. Mm-hmm. So that is, that's basically how it happened. And I think over that time, I helped maybe 10, 12 men go home from the board, which is not an, yeah, it's not an insignificant amount at all, but I just feel like I can help. I can help these guys. So, so were you shocked when the first time you went, it didn't work? The same thing you were telling everybody didn't work. Yeah. For you? Yeah. And I went in and I just saw like, man, it, it, you know, cause reading and feeling the certain, uh, uh, and feeling inside the boardroom were two totally different things. And I just saw like, this woman for some reason does not appreciate my directness, my honesty. And I would just, and it was, she was vicious to me. And I felt like, and everything I've been practicing in AVP and other groups about eye messages and effectively mm-hmm. communicating, it is not working. I'm getting denied. And even going back to the yard and they gave me a five-year denial, which was not even in the minimum denial. I think a lot of the my naysayers on the yard said, see, how, uh, uh, it, how can Quan help you when he can't even help himself at the pro board? And they gave him a, a pretty big denial. They said, oh, come back in five years. And I think even... When that happened, I think the one, one of the things that hurt me most at that time was my aunt, the, the one that used to work at mm-hmm. the Department of Defense. She's like the ultimate researcher. Like even to this day, like, okay, there's this topic. She researches it, sends me like five, 10 articles on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, here, read about mm-hmm. this. And so I'm sure that she researched lifers in the state of California. And I'm sure in her research, she found anything less than so something less than 1% of lifers were going home or something. Wow. So she basically like well, wrote a letter to me yeah. was concerned for my well being and just said like, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But for me, it was like, man, my own family doesn't even believe in me. 
but then I had to uh, tell myself, if I don't believe in myself, whoever would. Yeah. And that was where I just went back, looked at why they denied me, researched more, okay, how do I address this? And I put in this petition to advance my hearing, I think about a year and two months after, which at the time, people on the yard said, no, you have to wait at least three years before you put in a petition to advance. Um, I put in mine at 14 months and everyone said, oh, they're going to deny it. So when they accepted my petition to advance the hearing, the guy said, oh, they only accepted it so that they can bring you in and they're going to deny you again. It's like that mindset yeah, of, uh-huh. of many it's, men. And it's like, like they just kind of claw and hold each other down. It must have so, been hard not to go back to your default way of thinking. It yeah. must have been really hard. Like the negative that was attaching to you so easily beforehand, before your transformation, it must have been so easy to just want to slip back into that mindset. It took a lot yeah. of work and courage to press yeah. forward, I imagine. And a lot of journaling, a lot of just like, you know what? What does this say about me that um, I still have to prove this person wrong or prove myself right? So those are just things I have to, you know, mm. when I do this thing called queries to myself, and if I'm upset about something and I actually write it down where I'm upset about, and then I usually ask myself, why am I angry about this? Like, why does this bother mm. me? Why do I have to feel I have to prove them wrong? And I realize I don't. And mm-hmm. So that's just where I, things just landed for me. The second hearing was actually even more vicious than the first. It was that same commissioner. This time she was even more mean to me. Yeah. I mean, like I, 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 I even out here when I was writing my book and going back through my transcripts and rereading those words. Mm-hmm. And mind you, this is what, five years, like the, that first hearing was 2013. So I started writing the book in 2018, right around 2018, five years after that experience with her in the boardroom. I'm now home, mind you. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to go into the pro board anymore. Reading her words again still hurt me, still bothered I would imagine. me. Like, I would imagine yeah. from what you shared in the book, she did sound like an extraordinarily harsh person. Yeah. Not very gracious indeed. And miraculously, you were found. But yet she still granted me parole. I know. On the second hearing, yeah. Unbelievable. I would just love to ask you so many questions. There's so many. We could talk all day because I just loved the book so much, genuinely. But I really, really want to get to one of the most incredible parts of this whole thing is that how after only six months after being out of prison, you started your own company. Tell me about the beginnings of Defy and what made you want to start a company? And did you start with a mission, a goal, like all these things that you start, uh, that people sit down and they come up with this mission statement and purpose, or did you just start it and then it just took off? Tell me about that. Uh, Okay, so Defy, to give your listeners context, Defy Ventures is a nonprofit that uh, believes in transforming the lives of men and women with criminal histories uh, through the journey of entrepreneurship. So it was at the last prison I was at, at Solano, when um, they came and did a presentation. It was, I guess it was a pilot program. And they said, here, we're here to talk about entrepreneurship and changing our lives. So I, of course, that resonated with me because I was old man, who doesn't like to hustle? Who doesn't? look at themselves as entrepreneur. I've, I've been reading books about entrepreneurship and business and, and all that my whole prison term. So mm-hmm. I love that topic. Mm-hmm. So of course I signed up 
I was found suitable and paroled before I finished the program. And I continued with them after I paroled. So, you know, in the program, it's always, they, they, they ask like, what's your opportunity? What are you making of it? So of course that's filled in my mind. When I came home, I was working at a real estate company with my brother mm-hmm. and I saw that the um, cleaning services that a janitorial company, it was not good. I used to work in the prison hospital. So I was mm-hmm. part of a team and part of a crew where we cleaned the hospital very, very good. So I, it just gave me an extra eye for like cleanliness. Of course, duty I it was just in my mind. So one day I found out that the building owner um, was looking for a new cleaning company. Mm-hmm. We went online and I, and I know in our course, what they say, you have to have your company. And what is your name of your company first? So how am I going to introduce myself to this? So I looked up like, okay, well, what's my company going to be called? I want it to be something valuable and something like really cool. So I looked up and we're janitors. So gold janitors, platinum janitors. I looked up, they're all taken. So then uh-huh. I landed on, what about jade janitors? I say, yeah, Asians, we love jade, the jade, uh, the stone, the jade stone. Mm-hmm. And I looked up jade janitors. And no one had taken Jade janitors. So on GoDaddy, I purchased it for Mm $9.99. So then I had the domain name. So I emailed the building owner. My name is Quan Huyen. I'm the CEO and founder of Jade janitors. Like that's how V5 teaches us to introduce ourselves. So that's that's what I did. I I hear you're looking for this. He sent me back an email said, oh, thanks for reaching out. Uh, Can you give me a copy of your business license and certificate? So, what the hell is this? So I asked <laughs> some family members. You said, oh, you got yeah, you have to go down to the county courthouse and do this and this and this. I said, okay. So I went that same day, got that uh, filed, got my DBA and scanned it, sent it back to him that same day. So it it, it bothers me to say that maybe he didn't notice or maybe he didn't care. It would have said date of of building. It was that same day. Mm-hmm. I sent that to him. He said, can you give me a copy of your janitorial insurance? So I got on Google, like, what is janitorial insurance? I love and, it. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, and then I looked into like different policies, like, oh, what's the standard policy? Like, you know, it's, it's a million per incident, two million aggregate. Okay, what's the best one? Then I called a couple companies and that's when I realized, okay, this is going to be my first big gamble. Like I paid a couple hundred to get the license and certificate. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying $400 to sign on the policy plus another $80 a month for the next year. Had no company, no contracts, no employees yet. I said, you know what? I think I can do this. And I purchased the policy, sent it to him. He says, can you give me a quote? So since I work in the building, I knew, okay, okay, the building's this big. It'll probably take uh, me three hours to clean this. So I will put somebody here and I'll pay them for four hours to clean this. This is what I will pay them. This is the margins I would want. Mm-hmm. Here's the quote. And I sent it off and he goes, thank you would you guys be willing to start this Friday? It was four days that I got that first contract. That's incredible. I love love your teachableness, how there was no fear in it. You just, good, thank God for Google. (laughs) (laughs) I love that we can all learn from that. Like, just start, just do something, right? Yeah, just do it. Just do it. I love it. And so- Because I look there now, like I could have just go- so many things could have stopped me at that point. Yes. Like, you know, asking for the license, asking for a certificate, for asking sure. for insurance. And, and, then, and then it could have, it could have been just me, like me, this person five years later. Yeah, you know, I had a chance to open a company before. They've asked for all this stuff and making excuses. But no, you mm-hmm. know what? Mm-hmm. And how many opportunities do we have? And that's how I look now. Like, 
what other opportunities is the universe going to give me today? Because that's the kind of attitude I took while in prison. Like, what is my learning lesson for today? And what am I going to learn today from somebody? So I, I'm glad I carried some of that out and I followed through with it. And that's how my first company started. I'm writing down Still your running quote. to this day. Is it? Awesome. I'm writing down your quote. What other opportunities is the universe going to give me today? I think that's a beautiful way to look at the world. So Defy Ventures came after starting this company? So Defy Ventures, because I was part of Defy Ventures already. Oh, and then okay. when they expanded, like I was, I was one of their, they're called entrepreneurs in training. Like when, oh, okay. when yeah. one of their, I was one of their graduates. So I started the company and then they expanded out here to Southern California because they had a chapter in New York and in San Francisco, I think at the time. So they said, oh, we're going to get an office down in Southern California. Uh, when I found out they had a program manager position open, so I interviewed for it. And I luckily was hired and brought on board. So that was, what, almost four years ago now, I think. Yeah. And it's the perfect June fit for be, you. Yeah. Uh, you just yeah, no, I, I feel like I'm, I'm so I'm so lucky and fortunate to to be part of the organization. So, yeah, that's that's when I jumped on board and uh, began building out our post-release program. And now you mentor other um, previously um, incarcerated people who have now been released from prison. You uh, mentor them into owning their own businesses and starting their own companies, correct? Yes. You no, know, I don't really, I, I wouldn't call myself a mentor. I mean, I'm just the one there to help them, like be the first voice to welcome them home nice. before they split or thing. But then now, yes, my job entails like the ones that have been home longer that are now ready to build their businesses. Then, cause now my, my official title is senior program manager of entrepreneurship program. So I help on that component. Mm -hmm. um, so like when they come home, they're brought into career and reentry and get them adjusted, get them find, help them find a job. And the ones that later on are a little bit more adjusted are already working out. You know what? I'm ready to build a side hustle. I'm ready to do this. That's when um, I get to be a part of that. Beautiful story. And you tell it so well. I only have three closing questions, maybe four, because for you, I found one more that's very pertinent. Um, but I'll make that one the last one. What is your one tip to make the world a better place? Say hello to everybody. Everybody, every stranger you walk by, just say hello. How are you doing? How Look at them in the eye and say hello. How are you doing? I like that one. You're the only one who's ever said that. A lot of people say, be kind, be gracious, be loving, but you made it very actionable. That's pretty yeah. cool. I mean, that's one thing I used to do every day in the, on the prison yard. I see somebody and they have their head down. Hey, how are you doing? And I used to do it out here. It's like complete strangers. And then I remember like family members or friends, they're like, why do you say hi to everybody? I say, what do you, why not? Why not? That's a great yeah. response. <laughs> yeah. It makes people feel happy, right? Um, and seen, most importantly. I think a lot of yeah, people seen. want to be seen. Because mm -hmm. basically, Tom, I, I see you. Whatever pain yeah. you're in, I see you. I see mm -hmm. you. I acknowledge your existence. You're mm -hmm. here for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. What are you the most thankful for right now? Figuring that it's going to be Mother's Day, like that I have my mother around, okay. that I get to spend time with her. Yeah. I'm grateful for my mom. Good. That's beautiful. What is your favorite quote? And that's gonna, it's hard for book lovers to pick just one. So, I mean, I won't, I won't pin you to this. You can have many. This just be your favorite one today. 
I do have many, but I think one that uh, that sits with me, and I actually print that print that quote and carried it with me in prison, and I still have it. Uh, it's by C.S. Lewis from his book Mere Christianity, and it's uh-huh. I'm gonna probably chop it up and mess it up, but I'll try to paraphrase it. But it's okay. something like it's about choices, and it's about out of all the innumerable choices that you make over your life, you could turn yourself into a hellish creature or a heavenly creature. So it's just mm. about making your choices, and that's what drove me each day. Like at this point, can I make the right choice? And mm-hmm. at this point, can I make? And it's just every single second of my day. Let's just make the right choice, and I could. And I think that and that ties right into what the very first line in chapter two of my book. I was not mm-hmm. born a murderer. I got exactly. here by making wrong choices over millions of wrong choices over my life. But then in understanding that, then I can move on from that by making correct choices. So. Exactly. Isn't that that's just the beauty of of books is we can all read the same books and every single one of us take a different part of it out that speaks to us based on our lived experience. And that Mm -hmm. definitely speaks to the the beauty of your lived experience. I really like that. All right. My one last final question for you is what book are you reading right now? I am reading, well, because I'm part of this book club and uh, there's a book I'm reading right now called Black Buck. Black Buck? Really? Yeah, by Mateo Ascaripur, who's, uh, I guess, going to be joining uh, us, I think, on the last week we meet. Ever since COVID started, the Defy Ventures community created a book club, and we read one book a month, and we meet every Monday. Yeah, and it's 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 so and it's been going on for over a year, and we still meet virtually. So oh, that's awesome! Well, good. Is is this book uh, fiction, nonfiction? It's a fiction book, but it's yeah, it's it's fiction, but it's it's, he writes in such a great like I love his dialogue and I love his perspective. So. Mm Well, I love your perspective and I thank you for sharing it with me today. And I just wish you all the best and whatever you continue to do in life, I'm sure there'll be new things, new ventures that you come up with. And I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Quan is genuine. He is the real deal. He did so much hard internal work and is so intentional in how he lives now. His desire to give back, serve, and encourage is evident in every area of his life. At the bottom of his email, Quan has this quote from Khalil Gibran, author of The Prophet, that succinctly describes how suffering can ultimately change us. He says, Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls, The most massive characters are seared with scars. May we all have the courage to see our past, current, and future struggles as gifts to our character, just as Quan has. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.